Got 20 minutes? Then you have time for a Bible study. Welcome to another episode of 20-Minute Bible Studies. Romans 10:17 says that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Over the next several minutes, you're going to hear an important message directly from God's Word and have your faith and knowledge increased. All you have to do is listen. Now, here are your teachers. Hello, everybody. Thanks for joining us. I'm Jordan Pine. And I'm Andy Baylog. Let's get started. Our late pastor, Gary Whipple, the founder of our ministry, used to say that it would be correct to state, you have been saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved. So today we're going to study a passage from the book of Hebrews that helps explain what he meant by that. Join us now as we listen to the Word of God. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 23 through 25. The former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Hebrews 7, 23-25 The core verse here is verse 25. It states that he, Jesus, is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him. This is a great verse to begin questioning your understandings of the words of salvation or save when they appear in the Bible. We have taught that it can have different meanings other than just initial salvation or salvation from hell through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Right. For example, many will take the phrase, he is able to save forever, and use it to teach the doctrine of assurance, once saved, always saved. Except, if that's the meaning, then the verse contradicts itself a few words later. Yeah, Jordan, because it qualifies the statement by saying, those who draw near to God through him, or literally, those drawing, present continuous tense, near to God through him. So, does that mean if we aren't drawing near, we aren't saved forever? Right, so that that creates a problem. Let's clear this up and figure out what the writer of Hebrews was trying to say here. We'll begin with the SPACE method again. SPACE is an acronym. The SP stands for speaker, A for audience, C for context, and E for explanation. We created this acronym to remind Bible students and ourselves to think about who was speaking and to whom, what was happening at the time, and the theme and message of the verses that lead up to the scripture reading because we believe it's critical to consider these things before attempting to interpret Scripture. Okay, so let's use the space method here. The speaker is an elder and respected church leader, but the specific author is unknown. Many believe it was the Apostle Paul based on contextual clues, but there's also evidence it was not Paul. Some say maybe Barnabas, Silas, Luke, some say Philip, Aquila, or even Priscilla. Of course, ultimately, the author is the Holy Spirit. And if we go to 2 Timothy 3.16... It reads, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. 
Right. So it's the Holy Spirit, no matter what, whether you want to side with some scholars who believe Paul or other scholars who believe someone else wrote it. As for the audience here, it's uh, Hebrew or Jewish Christians. We must always keep in mind if a passage of Scripture is written to Jews or to Gentiles, and sometimes it's written to both, because the means and method of salvation for Jews was different than it was for Gentiles. The Jews were nationally saved, if you will, just by being God's people. Or, as our founder, Pastor Gary Whipple, used to say, they were saved on the layaway plan. The Gentiles had no such heritage. God has always dealt with them individually as the ingrafted. You can see Romans 11, 17-24 for that reference. The audience here, therefore, is people who were once Hebraic Jews, as opposed to Hellenistic Jews or Greek Jews, such as the Corinthians. And these Hebraic Jews had a good sense of the Old Testament laws and traditions. So the context of Hebrews is a time of persecution and transition. It's a few years before AD 70, which is when Emperor Titus and Commander Tiberius sacked Jerusalem and destroyed the Second Temple. So being a Christian at this time meant physical risk. And Hebrews 11.37 says, They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins in goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. So there was much temptation and pressure to backslide into Jewish practices and downplay the glory of Jesus Christ, perhaps downgrading him to an angel. When reading Hebrews 1 and 2, you will find these chapters are a direct rebuttal to this idea. The context of chapter 7 is as follows. It comes right after chapters 5 and 6, obviously, numerically, but those chapters distinguish the milk of the word from the meat of the word. Hebrews 5, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food or meat. That's Hebrews 5, 12 to 14. Hebrews 6, therefore, leaving the elementary teachings about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God of instruction about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. That's Hebrews 6, 1-2. So we find a call to maturity, but more important, what meat did he want them to feed on? In general, the meat is teaching specifically about the second coming of Christ, since their salvation was already secure with the first coming of Christ. That's the milk. Specifically, if you look at the arc of chapters 5 to 7, he wanted them to understand a teaching about the high priest and king, Melchizedek. Right, Jordan. He wanted them to see that Jesus was designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And we see that in Hebrews 5.10. The word order of there means type of in the New Testament Greek. And the Greek word for that is taxis. It's pronounced taxis. And the definition Today's equivalent would be the fashion of or in the style of. So that's what the meaning of in the order of Melchizedek would mean. And in chapter 6, verse 20, he adds, He is a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So this is a deeper teaching that only the spiritually mature can understand. And the author even writes in Hebrews 5.11, he says, Concerning him we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. So in translation, you Hebrews are probably not mature enough to understand what I'm about to tell you. And for our listeners, since getting into deeper things that are difficult to understand is the primary purpose of our ministry, we'll get into Melchizedek in a moment. 
But first, let's reread and break down our scripture reading as we're now ready to attempt an explanation. Hebrews 7, 23 and 24. The former priests, on the one hand, existed in great numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. That's pretty straightforward. What better priest to have than one who is immortal and can intercede for you forever? And you know, we Christians have a final and perfect high priest. In context, again, this is holding up the superiority of Lord Jesus under the new covenant to the priests of the old covenant, which was necessary because of the Judaizers of the time. And again, Judaizers are people who were teaching Christians they had to follow the old practices of the law. Right. So moving on to Hebrews 7.25, it reads, Therefore he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Note that the Greek word translated forever here is actually not the same word that is normally used for the word forever. This word is actually pantales, which literally means completely, utterly, or perfectly. And that's different than the word that appears just a few verses earlier. Quoting the Old Testament in verse 21, the author writes, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. And that Greek word is eon, which is similar to the word eon and literally means for a period of time or an age. So whenever you see forever in the English Bible, it's usually the word eon. But in today's reading, it's actually pantales. And it's ironic because neither word really means forever in our sense of the word. Right. One means age lasting, and the other in the verse we're studying actually means utterly or completely. In other words, Jesus is able to save completely those who draw near to God through him. Completely refers to the spirit, soul, and body, the pneuma, suke, and soma in the Greek or mind, body, and spirit in modern English. So this can be viewed as a reference to the three parts of man. Now, when you parse the word for save in that verse, or sozo, you also discover something interesting. It's in the present tense, which indicates an ongoing or continuous action, an ongoing or continuous salvation, which is salvation of the soul. This is opposed to our salvation from hell, our spirit salvation, which was a one-time event in the past. When you see that version of salvation in the New Testament, it will be in a different tense. For example, in Ephesians 2 and 8, it says, For it is by grace you have been saved. That's sozo, translated as the English past tense. But that doesn't really do it justice, because in Ephesians, it's actually in the Greek perfect tense, which indicates a completed action, here justification, with an ongoing result. Back to our scripture reading, Hebrews 7.25 is saying that Jesus is able to keep us righteous and clean for the judgment seat completely. That's our spirit, our soul, and our body. And we need to remember Adam fell in three parts, and the second Adam, which is Jesus, can redeem all three parts, but only if we draw near, which of course requires our works as well. This brings us back to Melchizedek. Let's go back to the beginning of chapter 7 to see what the author has to teach us about him. Verse 1, he was a priest of the Most High God. And you can see Genesis 14, 18 for that. Yeah, all, all these sections, by the way, in this uh, passage of Hebrews have a reference back to Genesis, which tells the story of when Abraham met uh, King Melchizedek. Uh, he was also a king of Salem, speaking of which, Salem means peace. So he was a king of peace. And you can see that in Genesis 14, 18 as well. There's also an idea that city that he was the king of was actually Jerusalem. There's a strong support for that idea. So he was an old king of Jerusalem, essentially. 
and Salem means peace. Verse 2, his name also means king of righteousness. And then we learn that Abraham gave him a tithe, or tenth, of all of his spoils, and that's Genesis 14.20. Verse 4 adds that it was his choicest, or his best, spoils. As an interesting footnote, Genesis says that King Melchizedek brought out bread and wine and blessed Abraham, saying, Blessed be Abram, he was called Abram then, of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. You see, Abram had just won a decisive victory, and Melchizedek brought him bread and wine, which is interesting given that Melchizedek is a type of Christ, and bread and wine are types of the body and blood of Christ. Yeah, Jordan. So here we see actually a type or a foreshadow of Jesus Christ providing communion for his disciples during the Last Supper. So there's a, a basically a parallel correlation here between Melchizedek and Abraham and Jesus Christ, the, the antitype of Melchizedek and his disciples. Mysteriously, it also says that Melchizedek was without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. And you know, Andy, some have used the wording of these verses to teach that Melchizedek was the pre-incarnate Christ or some sort of supernatural being. However, a more accurate translation of the Greek from early manuscripts is whose father and mother are not written in genealogies. Right, Jordan. Hebrews 7.3 continues, But made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. The point being made is that the priesthood of Melchizedek is superior to the Levitical priesthood, which still existed when this was written, as each priest died and it eventually ended. But the Melchizedek priesthood is superior and perpetual because his death is not recorded. So the full teaching is this. Melchizedek, both a high priest and king, is a type of Jesus, since these titles describe his second and third offices. Yes, yeah, so just to be clear, we covered Melchizedek very quickly. And to be clear, the fact that he has no listed mother or father or genealogy in the Bible is critical to understand because, again, the author of Hebrews is speaking to Jews, and there were very strict rules about the Levitical priesthood, you know, the, the, the tribe of Levi, if you will. It had a pass in that bloodline. You had to know who your mother and father was in your genealogy because you had to be a part of the tribe of Levi in order to be a high priest in the, in the old Jewish um, law, you know, the old Levitical law. Here, the author is setting up Melchizedek as a priesthood outside of that law, he even suggests in another passage that, that Levi, the original Levi, tithed um, Melchizedek, the high priest, through the loins of Abraham, as he describes it, to set up a superior type, a perpetual priesthood, you know, really was foreshadowing a, a shadow of Jesus Christ, who he's trying to say in this passage, in this whole letter, really, is far superior and perpetual beyond the, the traditional high priest, a high priest forever. So that's really why he brings up Melchizedek and why Melchizedek is important for meat-eating Christians to understand, because that superior type goes above all the old things of the law. But getting back to the offices of Jesus Christ, you see, the milk of the word is that Jesus was a prophet who died for us. That's his first office. But the meat of the word, the strong food, is that he lives as our eternal high priest, seated at the right hand of God, where he intercedes for us. That's his second office. And that he will come again as our king, his third office. Understanding these three offices of Jesus and their significant purpose for man 
will lead us to graduate from milk teachings to meat, or from milk to meat in our spiritual diet of His Word. Amen, Jordan. So in summary, let's go over a few key points. We know that there was obviously a problem during the early church here, and it was beginning to become infiltrated with Judaizers. These were Christians who taught that people needed to keep the Old Testament law while trying to stay under grace. This ironically parallels the Arminian theology Christians of today, which teach that a Christian must abide to all the laws of the New Testament to keep their salvation secure. But the Bible clearly teaches that staying under the law to retain salvation would be like re-crucifying Jesus all over again, again and again, and like the Levitical priesthood did daily for Israel's sins. Whereas Calvinists today understand that the law and penalty of sin was paid in full on the cross. Yes, there's even uh, modern-day Christian denominations that teach the Old Testament, you know, rituals must be adhered to. I won't, I won't name the denomination, but we, we know we can think of one that, that teaches that, and that would also be wrong, of course. So you have like sort of New Testament legalism and Old Testament legalism, and both are wrong because of this re-crucifying. You know, Christians have to realize the fact that people do not go to hell for sin anymore, but for not accepting Jesus Christ as their only Savior. For by His grace only are we saved, plus zero works on our part. Our work is what determines our reward or our rank in his future millennial kingdom. On the other hand, our sins and lack of repenting and confessing them to our high priest can cause us to apostate or fall away, fall back in our relationship with God. These sins, therefore, will keep us from being intimate with God and limit our ability to produce spiritual fruit and works to attain aeonian age life or kingdom life. Another point, Jordan, I would like our listeners to understand is that the author of Hebrews, in his arguments, wanted to establish the Levitical priesthood as lacking perfection. And the priest Melchizedek, which these Hebrews would have learned about in their studies, maybe like Hebrew school today, represented something so much more to them. In a sense, the author, by writing about this, must have been a biblical law expert to even have seen the connection of Melchizedek with Jesus and how they were type antitype. He used their own law to prove that Jesus was the high priest they had been waiting for. What the Levitical priesthood could not do, Jesus Christ did do, and that was the main point. And remember the Old Testament atoned for or covered sins with their animal sacrifices, while Jesus Christ in the New Testament doesn't cover up, but pays for all sin once and for all. Yes, Old Testament scripture teaches that all high priests could be of the bloodline of Levi only, and we mentioned this earlier. However, Melchizedek had no family lineage before or after his birth, so he qualifies as someone unique. And since Jesus was of the tribe of Judah and not Levi, Melchizedek was the perfect example to use from the Old Testament to prove the validity of Jesus Christ being high priest and king at the same time without having to be part of the Levi bloodline or or that family lineage. And also by the law, he couldn't have been by the Levi law, he couldn't have been both a king and a high priest at the same time. Exactly. And one more point, Jordan. It's important to mention that Abraham tithed to Melchizedek before there was a law to do so. And it was even accounted for a tithe to Levi's account, his, his great-grandson's account. In other words, Levi and the law came after Melchizedek in his priesthood. And this brings about a good question. Why serve the shadow when the reality is revealed? Yeah, the shadow was the sacrifices and the ceremonies that were only a type or foreshadow, as we like to say, of the original thing, casting that shadow which was to come in the future. The antitype is Jesus Christ, the ultimate and perfect sacrifice. 
Okay, Jordan. So in summary, I just wanted to have a little conversation here, and I just kind of wanted to nail home some points for our listeners at home in case they don't know the difference between first tense and second tense salvation and how that's significant here in this in this study that we did today. Yeah, it's really important whenever you're reading a section of Scripture like we read today to understand what you're talking about. You see the word save and salvation, you have to understand the tenses, and these are verb tenses that we're talking about. You know, first tense salvation is, is justification, it's salvation of the Spirit, and it happened in the past for anyone who believes, who is a Christian, uh, one time, once for all. And then you have second tense, present tense salvation, which is ongoing, and that's the kind of salvation that we saw in view here today. Yeah, so basically, past tense salvation was the day you believed and acknowledged Jesus as your Savior, and the present tense salvation is your walk, your day-to-day confessing of sin, reading the Bible, and making Jesus the Lord of your life. And just some food for thought, Jordan, it's ironic how you could walk into any church today and hear a pastor offer the prayer of salvation, and they'll usually ask a new believer to confess Jesus as their Lord and Savior, which in reality, if you think about it, at that point, that's when a Christian actually accepts Jesus as their Savior. The Lordship comes as they build their relationship with the Lord. And that's our lesson, which means we have just a few minutes to explain our initiative, Get 20, Give 20. Get 20 is our reminder that you can get a 20-minute Bible study anytime you like by visiting our website. We archive all lessons and make them available for free at 20minutebiblestudies.org. You can listen online or download them for later or even subscribe to the podcast version and have new lessons automatically delivered to your favorite smart device. Even more important, our website is the place where you can join in our Bible studies by sharing your comments and asking any questions you may have. And we have a growing Facebook community and a discussion forum. When you're on our site, you should also sign up for email alerts so we can let you know when new lessons have been added. Also, when you sign up for email alerts, our first email back to you will include a link to a special series we put together titled 10 Mind-Blowing Things You Didn't Know Were in the Bible. It's an eye-opening set of Bible lessons, and it's our little thank you for joining our online community. It's all online at 20minutebiblestudies.org. Or, if you don't want to type so much, 20mbs.org will get you there faster. Moving on to Give 20. This is our special initiative to reach as many spiritually hungry Christians as we can. We know so many Christians find it hard to make time to study God's Word and then feel guilty they're unable to do it. Studying the Word of God is so vital to our spiritual growth, and yet it can be so hard sometimes to find a good study group and then attend that group on a regular basis. This is why we created 20-Minute Bible Studies. Everyone can find 20 minutes for God, and now, with this audio program, that's all Christians will need. They can listen to a Bible study whenever and wherever they like. The Give 20 initiative is your chance to participate in this great ministry and receive the special blessings that come from spreading God's Word. By giving just $20 per month, you can help us create more lessons and reach more believers than ever before. Plus, we pledge that every cent you contribute will go directly toward recording and broadcasting more lessons like the one you heard today. And since our ministry is an official nonprofit registered with the government, your donation is also fully tax-deductible. To join our Give 20 initiative, visit 20mbs.org and click Donate. And finally, 20-Minute Bible Studies is a ministry of Mysteries of the Kingdom, a nonprofit organization dedicated to educating Christians in preparation for the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you liked what you heard today and want to go deeper into God's Word, we strongly recommend you visit the website of Mysteries of the Kingdom, 
MOTK.org. Yes, these radio studies are just 20 minutes, but our MOTK lessons last as long as needed to fully understand whatever passage of Scripture we're studying. So if you're interested in learning more about what you heard today, you'll definitely want to check out our in-depth, multi-part studies, which are available for free at MOTK.org. Thank you so much for your 20 minutes. I'm Andy Balog. And I'm Jordan Pine. May God bless you. Thanks for joining us for another 20-minute Bible study. Special thanks to the family of Pastor Gary T. Whipple, to the Abundant Life Worship Center for the music for our show, and to Tom Pine for our scripture reading. I'm Steve Zioli, and until next time, may the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. All rates reserved, Mysteries of the Kingdom Incorporated.